everybody, I'm Colin. And my name is Javen. And this is the Abstract Podcast, where we talk about ideas that matter. Today on the show, Colin sits down and has a conversation with Professor Toby Grady, who is an adjunct professor here at Toccoa Falls College. Um, Toby Grady is working on his dissertation at the moment um, to complete his PhD, and he was kind enough to send over some of the research that he's doing um, to let Colin read beforehand as they sit down today and talk about hospitality. As usual, we are sponsored by Hirschberger's Bakery um, in Fair Play, South Carolina. And got a little something special going, Jamie. What do they got going on right now? Well, Hirschberger's Bakery offers frozen meals. Um, I don't think this is a new thing, but it's cool for sure. Um, you can get these frozen meals that are just pre-made and ready to go right from Hirschberger's Bakery. They got beef lasagna. Uh, you got chicken burrito, sausage spinach, cheddar lasagna, tater tot with corn, tater tot with green beans, ham and potato. So maybe you're the kind of person who loves these home-cooked, hearty-type meals, but you're not the kind of person who loves to make them. So all you'd have to do is go into Hershberger's and grab a frozen one. That would be a great thing. And grab you a donut or two for dessert. Yep. As usual, um, we presented a loaf of bread to Toby Grady Mm -hmm. at the end, which he was thankful for, and it was fitting because the theme was hospitality. That's right. Up next is Colin's interview with Toby Grady. Okay, well, we have today on the show um, Professor Toby Grady. He was my spiritual formation um, professor back in my sophomore year, and we have had significant setbacks trying to get this interview recorded (laughs) um, due to weather and sickness and car trouble, Um, but we finally made it here today. Um, And we're here to talk about uh, what you're working on as your um, project for your doctoral dissertation, correct? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And yeah, it's called is, a doctoral thesis, but yes. Okay. And this was based, this is, it was primarily research-based. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, so let's get into this topic right off the bat. Um, you introduce your topic of hospitality, and you talk of this experience you had when you were in school in Oregon. Mm-hmm. Um, and with this uh, single mother, if yeah. that's correct. Yeah. Um, could you talk a little bit, just say what, what happened there and why... Um, hospitality came on your radar as yeah. become as because of that and why maybe it flies underneath many of ours who are in Christian circles yeah so um, that's a, the two good questions um, and first of all I should say this it is research based it's also project based um, uh, this this thesis project but yeah we were my wife and I were um, involved in a in a relatively new church in the the Portland Oregon suburbs uh, when I was in seminary this is uh, 15, 16, 17 years ago. And um, I was an intern working with young adults. Um, we had like a young adults class sure. kind of thing. So college and career class. And um, what, uh, hospitality came on our radar because of a friend of ours that we met in our group. There was a, a young mother who uh, was a single mother, two kids. I think the kids were two and four at the time. And uh, she was one year older than my wife and I. So we're in, I think we were 25 and she might have been 26, if I remember right. And uh, she invited us over for dinner. And, um, you know, I'm immediately kind of kicking myself because I'm thinking, well, this is one of the people in our group. 
and she's a single mother. Sure. <laughs> we should have invited her over for dinner. So right. what are we thinking? But and it never occurred to me to do that. But she invited us over, and she's um, she's got th- this um, this uh, young lady. Then uh, she's my age now, and uh, we're still great friends. She still lives out in Oregon, um, and uh, has a huge family. Um, uh, she she got married uh, many years ago now, 10, 15 years ago. Um, again, and just a great girl, but she invited us over for dinner and we go down to her house and, uh, you know, I'm, I'm from the South and my wife's from the South too. And when we think of having people over for dinner, it kind of seems like a big to do, Mm -hmm. you know, that you put your finest foot forward and you clean your house perfectly. And you, you know, the people that offer hospitality are usually the ones who have, um, pretty fancy surroundings and so on and so forth. So we we were intrigued that she invited us over and we went over there. And one of the things I got to say about people from the Pacific Northwest is that they're just very laid back. Um, the, the example I always use is, you know, I went to the opera house one time and somebody wore sweatpants, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. <laughs> it's a, it is a laid back culture. And um, this this young lady, she was the same way and she had us over and and um, her apartment uh, was as clean as a single mother could be expected to mm-hmm. keep her apartment. Clean. I mean, it was it's difficult raising two kids by yourself and toddlers at that. And uh, so nothing was fancy. It was a, a suburban apartment complex. We had a, a normal meal. You know, we didn't have fancy matching dishes, um, but it was what she had to offer. And for me um, and for Katie, my wife as well, it was like a holy moment the the simple expression of love mm-hmm. and friendship that results that that comes from that um and she is still um one of our best friends to this day i mean we're still in contact we're all the way on the other side of the country but she and my wife probably talk once a month or so okay and um that relationship was so close um that you know when she um met her husband um and they got married they got married a couple of years after this um, and we found out we were so excited and, uh, they wanted us to be involved in the wedding. Well, Katie was pregnant at the time. We couldn't travel. We were living in North Carolina. They literally, she and her, her now husband flew to North Carolina to get married in North Carolina <laughs> so we could be a part of that. And I, I'll just never forget that. Um, so, uh, just a, a fantastic showing of that love for people by just offering the food that you have in your house. It was so intimate. You know, the. We went, I think we went and like, uh, <laughs> she said, bring your bathing suits. We went to the, we went to the heated pool and the little, uh, hot tub for the sure. apartment complex with the kids. It was hilarious. Yeah. It, was, it was great. So, and now those kids are, are college students. So, yeah. Very good. So that, that's how hospitality got on your radar. Yeah. So now talk to the second part of that question. What is it about hospitality that can fly under our radar or the reason that theme or topic can fly under our radar? I think there's a lot of reasons that hospitality flies under the radar, even though it is, I wouldn't say it's a, it's a, you could make a case for it being a central scriptural theme, but it's a very important and very constant scriptural theme throughout the Bible. Right, Um, and I want to get into some of those. Yeah, it gets left behind. And I I think there's a couple of different reasons. I mean, we're Americans. you know, we invented fast food and TV dinners. We are, um, when we think of meal meals, we think of convenience and speed mm-hmm. um, in part. 
um, even when we eat at home, we're, we're activity oriented. You know, you, you think about in France, they have these two hour meals every mm-hmm. day. Sure. Yeah. Um, Middle of the day. Uh, yeah. And, and they're spending all of this time together and it's that's just an expected part of the culture. And I'll notice, even though my wife and I, we really make an effort for, for us and our kids to sit down and have the meal the, at night together. Sometimes it's 12 minutes and the kids are wanting to get up and leave the table. Mm-hmm. And sometimes I am too. And uh, I think we, so that's part of it. It's a cultural issue for us as Americans. Uh, in terms of ministry, you know, if you think about starting a ministry, um, adding a meal to that ministry is a huge inconvenience. Um, it is not efficient to cook for large numbers of people. Right. It, uh, you know, when we think about ministry success in our evangelical Christian subculture, we tend to think numbers, and that's okay. Numbers is, is a good thing in a lot of ways. But, um, you know, you can't have a thousand people in your church all eat a meal together very easily. Um, it probably doesn't happen. Um, so you'll see a lot of churches emphasize small groups. But mm-hmm. so that's an a- aspect of it. It's not efficient. And I think, a, you know, another thing is um, we're very... Uh, very territorial. Um, we're also very far flung from one another, like geographically spaced. Mm. I think sometimes about people who don't have a car. You know, we live in a rural, r- largely rural county out right. here close to Coal Falls. Um, uh, if you don't have a car, you're up a creek without a paddle. You can't do anything in this culture. Um, in, this, in some cities, maybe it's better, but you can't do anything without a car. And we, we just tend not to be in each other's living spaces. And so we've developed a church culture that emphasizes the building. So when we do eat together, um, a lot of times we as Christians will eat at church together, which is a good sure. thing. That's a good thing. But there's something a little bit different when it's your own private personal space. It, it speaks on it. I mean, we had eaten in, in that young adult Bible study that I was talking about um, back in Oregon, back in the day, 15, 16 years ago, we ate at our facility too, but it didn't have the effect that this, this young woman having us over to her house had. So, right. yeah. Right. No, that's great. And that provides a little bit of a segue. Let's move into you, the first part of your, um, of your proposal. You spend a lot of time talking about why this is a relevant topic, um, mm-hmm. in the current cultural moment that we find ourselves, mm-hmm. um, in broad brushstrokes, give us an idea of why, um, why do you see that as so important for, for this cultural moment. I have some specifics we'll get into talking yeah. about, but just as a broad overview, what is it about yeah. this, this um, moment in history? Well, I think um, um, American culture is extremely lonely. It's a lone, We're a lonely culture. Uh, we're individualists, which makes us, um, you know, in large part world leaders and creating new technologies and new ideas and selling new products and th- things like that. But um, that's a the positive upside perhaps to, to individualism. But the negative downside of it is that we tend to focus on the things that we can do as an individual, as, a fo- as opposed to either what we can do together or as opposed to um, relationships in general. Um, and, you know, it's to me, it's just central to, to scripture that, um, you know, our, our greatest commandment is given down to us in relational terms. Mm-hmm. You know, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. It's, that's all about relationships with people. And America's not a very relationship-oriented society. Um, you know, we created social media, and social media is not particularly social. 
Um, it does have to do with interacting with people, but at a distance mm-hmm. and in a different way. Um, it's not entirely bad. There's good things about it. But uh, there's just so much disconnect between people, even disconnect between people of belonging to the same family. Right. Um, it is not hard at all for um, families to, to fall into a schedule where you eat one meal a week together, mm-hmm. all together. That's not uncommon. Right. Some don't even do that. Right. Well, um, that's, let me interject here because you, I thought it was interesting. You highlighted, um, you said the locus of American life has changed from the home to now being the workplace. What impact do you see that having on um, the family gathering around the table? Well, yeah, uh, a lot of that, um, I spend a lot of time talking about um, uh, Robert Putnam and his book, Bowling Alone, and he talks about the decline of American community life. Um, but when you move from, you know, the, the focus of our concentration as in terms of who we are as Americans, uh, of course, there's people that, are, that don't think this way. But to, you know, to brush with broad general strokes, you know, you, who, you are who you are in terms of your career and what you do. Um, if you ask people, you know, who are you, they might give you your, their name or maybe their ethnicity or culture or something like that, but they're largely going to head straight to what their job is. Sure. And, um, you know, I grew up in the, the Atlanta suburbs. In order to beat traffic to work and then beat it back home, uh, you, uh, a lot of people leave work earlier than 6 a.m. Mm-hmm. and they're getting back after 7 p.m. Sure. And by the time you do that and factor in mm-hmm. sleep, how do you have time for family? How do you have time for meal? How do you have time for kids? It's, it's impossible. And you are, um, you're not rewarded for being a, a family man or a, um, uh, you're not, you're not rewarded for being a, um, a woman who looks after her family first. You're rewarded for kind of putting that behind you. I remember reading an article, I think from the Atlantic Monthly, that was talking about how um, many women today who who are uh, uh, have high um, uh, co- highly compensated career women in um, American life are um, under a lot of pressure not to talk about their family or talk about their children at work because that's a sign that their head or their heart is in another place. Hmm. We want your head and your heart here at work, you know. Um, so there's a lot of pressure with that. It's it's sure. better in the small towns, but it's even it's here too. Sure. So yeah. What did we've referenced it a little bit already? But let, let's talk about um, different technological advances that have had impact mm-hmm. on this. Um, you referenced the the major shift in introducing the television into the household. Mm-hmm. Um, so talk about. Talk about the television a little bit. Talk about, uh, let's use that and, and start talking about social media's impact yeah. um, as well. Because as you, your preface is that America is lonely and this loneliness um, you see as leading to a significant increase in anxiety and depression, especially yeah. among um, youth and college age um, kids and, and the suicide on mm-hmm. the rise as well yeah. because of that. So let's kind of unpack that a little bit thinking about the television and social media and how that has connected a generation, but how that has still left a generation lonely. Yeah, sure. Um, well, you know, if we, if we think about television, uh, if you think about, you know, 1940s, 1950s, uh, in a house, um, in a warmer climate anyways, in the summer months, 
you have to go outside to escape the heat. And so people sit on the front porch, the kids are running around, and they're playing with other kids, and you're talking to your neighbors. It's very common now that you don't even know the names of the people that live next door to you. Very common. Um, uh, I've certainly experienced that. Um, so air conditioning drives people inside. Uh, television drives people inside. And, uh, you know, it's we're not anti-TV people. Uh, we have our TV on. Uh, we do make an effort every year. Uh, we we give up television for Lent as a family. Sure. And at first the kids are like, ugh. <laughs> and then by the end of it, they're like, I like this. I like this a lot. Um, but it, it does. It drives you inside. Um, with every new technological development, there's there's an upside, um, but there's a there's a downside. So um, you know, we've had a lot of talks. We have a we have a teenager now, and he has a smartphone. We held out as long as we could, and he's a great kid. Um, but we've had a talk uh, about it, and you can you know measure on a, on an iPhone. I'm, I'm not sure on all devices, but you can measure how much screen time you've had in a day. And um, for a teenager today, three hours is not that much right. screen time. But what did teenagers do with those three hours 10 years ago when your phone was a T9 texting enabled? It, it, it was boring. It was boring to do anything on a flip phone. And now we have these, these things that are um, these devices in our pockets calling to us at all times that have more power than... Um, you know, a laptop you would have spent good money on not too long ago. Mm-hmm. And it's right there in your pocket beckoning to you. And so, and the commercials are always promising more. They're never promising you less. Um, they're always promising more. Uh, if, uh, to give a good example of that, if you try to quit your satellite television um, subscription, just go put the thing on speakerphone and listen, and they will promise you more and more and more and more and more and more and more. And I've had these conversations with people. It's like, well, the funny thing is I actually want less. less is less feels more to me and it there's no button for that you know there's no plan for that it's oh wait but we can offer you more for less as like what i really like is less for more (laughs) i'll be willing to pay more to have less Uh, but there isn't uh there isn't that option so you know you have problems of um i remember a, a story that i read where i think it was in san francisco neighborhoods the kids didn't have anybody to play with um, because everybody was playing Fortnite. The kids go outside, go find somebody to play with. And there was nobody. And they're all inside playing. So with every technological advancement uh, that places an emphasis on screens, um, we spend more time with the screen and away from people. And people are different from behind screens. Um, You know, you see on, on social media how vitriolic and hateful somebody can be especially mm-hmm. about politics but about anything else on on uh, any of the social media platforms and you think would you say that to somebody's face if they were standing in front of you I think chances are no that they would not um, and so the way we interact is different but it also causes us to lose um, the um, the face to face that's so powerful and we need it I mean we're we're made for this to read each other's facial expressions. Instead, we're reading mm-hmm. emojis to understand somebody's emotions. And so the more you spend, I think, away from face-to-face interaction with people, the more you spend in a device. Um, I mean, studies have shown, and I spent a lot of time on the, my thesis talking about Jean Twenge. She's a psychologist at San Diego State. She's written um, a book called Generation Me. Um, some of those themes are continued in her newest book, which is called um, I, Jen. 
I-G-E-N, like as in the Mm -hmm. I generation. And she refers to that generation that way because of the the advent of the smartphone. Mm -hmm. Um, And if I'm remembering, um, pardon me if I get some of my thoughts wrong on this, I think that it's by 2012, half of all teenagers owned an iPhone, I think it was. Not a smartphone, but an iPhone. There's others that owned other phones. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, uh, you know, just 10 years ago, we didn't have these things. Now we do. How is it changing the way that we interact? And she uh, she just profiles an unbelievable amount mm-hmm. of very frightening statistics. Um, she also did a, a shortened version of this for the Atlantic Monthly called... Um, have smartphones destroyed a generation, which is an article you can look up on there. And she she basically references how since 2012, since these things are in our pockets, mm-hmm. actually, um, what has it done to our youth? You know, um, there's been some positive things. Um, people party and get drunk less in large part because they're not going out. They're staying at home with right, the phone. Right. Um, so maybe that's a good thing. Mm-hmm. But there's a lot of things like loneliness, has skyrocketed. Suicide rates have skyrocketed. Uh, suicide attempts have skyrocketed. Depression rates, so on and so forth. It's it's really uh, it's really uh, amazing. Right, and what and uh, you did a great job bringing out. I thought in your um, paper some research by Sherry Turkle, mm-hmm. um, who I have found helpful um, in thinking through these things. But yeah, she's she, brilliant. Yeah, and she talks about it, which you highlight in your paper, which I think sometimes gets left out of the conversation in which. Um, sometimes when we talk about social media, gaming, movies, whatever else, it's talked about, um, specifically social media um, and the smartphone, but it's talked about, well, it's about the content that's coming across. Um, the smartphone is a medium to access information or content, so mm-hmm. you need to be aware mm-hmm. um, and critical of what content is coming across your screen, which I think is is true. It's good, yeah. It, yeah. Um, yeah, you don't want your kids looking at... I don't know, radical political ideologies or how to make bombs. Right, right, yeah. (laughs) So obviously that's good. Um, But what gets left out sometimes, though, is what Turkle calls is the medium being the message um, or as the very habit of um, our brains get rewired simply from how the phone functions um, and how we use it more than just what content comes across the screen. Yeah, sure. And it's also a function of the time that we have. Um, but yeah, I mean, we rely on our phones to do things so much we don't even realize it anymore. I mean, when was the last time you pulled out a paper map and navigated using one? Uh, how many young people have never used a paper map and couldn't if they needed to? Um, because we're so used to, um, you know, our phones for that. That's That may be a good thing. I mean, I like having GPS navigation on my phone. Right. It's pretty helpful. Yeah, I'm bad with direction, so it's a right. lot safer. <laughs> but uh, the downside to having GPS navigation on my phone is that if I'm using my phone to navigate and drive the car is I'm, oh, I got a message on Facebook. Oh, you know, I got a, right. a, a, an announcement from ESPN about so on and so forth. Uh, these kinds of things um, distract you while driving. But they also distract us in our, our life um, with people. We're not meant to see, uh, uh, I, I'm not meant to have, I think I have 1,600 friends on Facebook now. Mm-hmm. I, can't, I can't live in a community with 1,600 people and really interact with them. Right. It's, it's not possible. So how much effort am I putting into those 1,600 acquaintance friendships when I could be investing in 10 friendships of depth that provide 
help provide wisdom and meaning and support for my life and I'm doing the same for them, how much are we pushing that away in order to embrace, you know, the face on the screen? And it's just, it's not the same thing. It's not the same thing. And, and, but you're right. I mean, it's not just content, but there is some, wow, there's some nasty content right out there on the, on the, on the web. There's no, there's no filter. It's just, it's a Pandora's box. But in addition to that, it is, it's the time we spend and how Mm -hmm. we, even when we do um, spend time with people through our phones, how we spend it is, is interesting. Right. Yeah. And there's, there's good data, scientific and psychological about even um, the types of chemicals it releases in our brain. Like it can be a a sort of addictive. Yeah. Um, And that, that's kind of um, what opened my eyes a lot to it is just hearing different of the designers from Silicon Valley sure. talking about it and how careful they are. Notification about technology. Yeah. 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 And, um, like even I, I was reading about the guy who created the endless scroll, like on Instagram, Facebook, anyway, like he recognized the, the, um, impact and imperatives that, that, that yeah. uh, technology would bring. And because of that, he didn't want his kids to have those kinds of things. And, and when these major designers are keeping their, their own children from engaging with having even having a smartphone. Right. Um, then I was like, okay, there's a lot to even just the medium, not just the yeah. content that's coming. Yeah, through. they're not making money off of you if you're not using it. Right. They, the, the notification technology works by getting you immersed in that digital world. So you know when you go to a casino, the, there's not windows and there's not clocks because the longer amount of time you spend in front of the slot machine, push a quarters through the slot. You know they're making more money off of you, not less. Right. And that they, it's in the nature of what a casino is that it they want you to spend your time there. The more time you spend there, the more time you, the more money they make. Right. It's it's the same with our digital devices. Yeah. 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 And we could keep talking about um, this present cultural moment um, for a long time, but we we want to talk about hospitality. Yeah. So let's shift from that. So that's kind of the backdrop and the context um, that you set up at the beginning. To, to introduce and to develop this idea and theme of hospitality. Um, let's just kind of go, uh, you first off, it's important to, uh, one of the most important things when talking with a word is thinking of how we're going to define the word. Yeah. And you spend a little bit of time there at the beginning. Um, you mainly define it um, by unpacking uh, how it, the literal translation in, in Greek. So yeah. tell us what it is. Yeah, it's such a fascinating word. Um, hospitality is our translation of a much more interesting word than the word hospitality. You know, we think of hospitality, we might think of, um, you know, budget motels or putting out doilies at a, at a dinner at your house or something like that. But uh, hospitality is translated from the Greek word philoxenia, which um, interestingly enough, literally means the love of strangers. Yeah. The love of strangers, and uh, I'm intrigued, very much intrigued by that word. Um, when we, if we look at the way the Bible uses, and by the way, there's no Old Testament term for for hospitality, but the concept is definitely right. there. It's all over the place. Um, it doesn't always have to be directed toward a stranger, uh, but it often is. And when it's when it's directed um, toward a stranger, it's often uh, most often directed towards a stranger in need. Um, if you think about a, a, you know, a Middle Eastern culture is very much hospitality based because if in many cases, if somebody doesn't invite you into their tent and offer you water, you're going to die mm-hmm. in, in that harsh wilderness of, of desert. Um, so it, it, that's part of the backdrop of it. Um, but it's really uh, the way I kind of ended up defining it is that um, 
that hospitality is, generally speaking, you know, expression of love for God through a concrete, literal expression of love for neighbor, particularly the vulnerable neighbor, and particularly the vulnerable neighbor in terms of supplying basic physical and relational needs. Like people need friends. They need a place to belong. They need love. They need um, uh, physical sustenance. They need water. They need shelter. They need clothing. How do we uh, how do we do that through our hospitality? Then I guess becomes a question. Sure. So you you reference it's a it's not a word in the Old Testament, but it's a theme that's captured. Mm-hmm. Uh, how is it captured? Um, it's it's in, in many different places. Um, uh, you know, there's also the possibility of divine uh, divine presence. If I look at um, if you look in the law in Deuteronomy, uh, here's a, a, a scripture from Deuteronomy 10, uh, verse 17. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, the awesome God who is not partial and takes no bribe. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow, and he loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Love the sojourner, therefore, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. And so God has this way of saying, hey, you remember the story of the Exodus. And you know how it feels, or at least you know the stories of how your ancestors felt in the wilderness. Mm-hmm. Um, show that same love to a person in that same state. God took care of you. You know, there's um, water from the rock, and and um, uh, you know, there's bread falling from the sky. Um, I took care of you. What are you going to do to take care of your neighbor? And we see that theme continued. The the other really intriguing thing is this possibility of divine presence. You know, that it might actually be in some way, shape, or form God himself that you're ministering to in, in his needs. And we see that pop up a couple of times, uh, both in Old and New Testament stories. Um, right. Pretty mysterious. Yeah. So in the Old Testament, it's, and this seems to be continued in the New Testament, mm-hmm. the foundational motivation in the Old Testament, even though the, the word's not there, it's based out of how God has been faithful to Israel's story and deliverance from their own enslavement that gets we see that in the new testament even in something like um enemy love like in romans 8 when it talks about when we (coughs) were god's enemies Mm -hmm. um he still had kindness on us and then that's um if you've seen that kind of love from the father then that is reciprocated in in your love for your own enemy and your love for neighbor. Right. And what, what's cool is you basically just said do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And that's that's the thrust behind um, hospitality for sure. Right. Yeah. So with the actual word hospitality, I found once once I read through that and, and uh, got it in my mind, it all of a sudden starts popping up like it's everywhere in the New yeah. Testament. Yeah. Um, what are some of the, the significant uses of hospitality in the New Testament that you think are particularly instructive? Um, well, I love this uh, I love this passage. I'm going to read it to you if I have it here. Um, uh, you know, we have, uh, here's Jesus in Luke 14. And he says, you know, it, it, we always have the possibility of entertaining prominent guests which there's an ulterior motive a lot of times for that. Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean it's wrong to have somebody of position or power at your house. But um, when we think about hospitality, we're thinking more of people um, who have less than that, or people you're not necessarily trying to impress, mm-hmm. people you're just trying to show love to. Um, Jesus says this, this is Luke 14, uh, verse 12. When you give a dinner or a banquet, 
Do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or your rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. That's more like entertaining, maybe we would call that. But when you give a feast, and here's hospitality, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. You will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. So there's a, gosh, I mean, that's it's heavy, but there's a, mm-hmm. a sense of divine um, uh, consequences um, for how we treat others. And I don't think that, that means that we need to be under the urge to feel guilty about how often we invite people over to our house, but it shows you how important it is um, to God and, uh, and, and God's value system. We have the, uh, the concept of, you know, do not neglect to show hospitality for by it, you, you may entertain mm-hmm. angels. Uh, we see in the, the story of uh, the walk to Emmaus, there Jesus is walking alongside two disciples and his identity is hidden from them. It's a resurrection story. And uh, it's not until they invite him into their house, um, perhaps they're concerned about him continuing to walk mm-hmm. by himself after dark, which was a very dangerous thing to do in Jesus's day. There's no street lights and no police presence out on wilderness roads. So they're walking out to Emmaus, seven miles from Jerusalem. And um, it's not until they invite him into their home and he's holding bread and he takes the bread and he breaks the bread, very familiar communion image, that realize, oh my goodness, God has been here with us all along. Yeah. You know, um, so that's a, that's a great example of, of that passage. Um, I don't know how that applies to us today, but there's something um, powerful and deeply theological about hospitality. It's not just food. Right. So. And that's what um, you talk about it as theology and practice. Mm-hmm. Um, basically, whatever your vision of God is, if you have the vision that he has been kind to his enemies, you being chief mm-hmm. of them, um, if you have that as your backdrop for God, then that naturally works out kind of as hospitality. And you kind yeah. of see that throughout Scripture. It's kind of like the good tree is going to bear good fruit. Um, mm-hmm. if, if you really do seek to love God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and you, and you recognize how he has done that for you, yeah. it kind of just flows. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, like you have to, like you talked about, like it's an embodied practice. So you have to actually create the space you have to spend mm-hmm. time making the meal and you actually have to create the space for this encounter that's um, deeply embodied uh-huh. and you never know the person receiving this could be an embodiment as well yeah. of the spirit of God. Yeah. And uh, we're not yeah. privy to that information, but that doesn't matter. Right. And, and even, you know, even if not, I don't, I don't know, maybe we will sometime in our life, but even if not, um, there's just great power. And offering somebody home cooked food in your house and they and they eat with you. Yeah. There's an intimacy that comes to that that there's not it's hard to replicate in any other way. Yeah, talk about the um we're running out of time here, but talk about you spent some time at Appalachian State yeah. um college mm-hmm. where you worked um with students and mm-hmm. talk about your shift in your ministry model. Yeah, when, we, when um, how you adopted this. Yeah, we um you know, a traditional campus ministry model which which works. Let's let's not let's be honest. It does work, um, but a traditional campus ministry model, you might find a, a space on campus. You're an official club. You get access to a space that the college provides for you, and you can get probably a bigger crowd doing that because mm-hmm. it's convenient to the dorms and whatnot. And so what we did, uh, I just kind of decided I just didn't want to deal with that hubbub 
I, honestly, it was more unwitting than anything else. I'm, I'm thankful that I fell into it. But uh, we lived six miles from campus, and we offered, we just said, why don't we just open our house and cook some food? So we went on, uh, I think my wife went on eBay and found a bunch of old used elementary school cafeteria trays, mm -hmm. bought a whole bunch of those. Uh, they fit in the dishwasher. And um, she would make a, uh, a lot of our students were vegetarians. Um, so she would always make a vegetarian dish that both yeah. vegetarians and people who weren't vegetarian would like. And we would have a Bible study and worship and whatnot and invite people over. And it's really inefficient. Our meetings were uh, a lot longer than they otherwise would have been. Right. Um, it cost us some money, uh, I'm sure, to create the food. But it was kind of miraculous. We did this up there. We did this for seven years every Wednesday night during the school year, so 30 times a year. And uh, by the end, we Katie would cook for 80 people. Wow. And uh, we would never have 80 come, but we wanted to make sure we could feed 80 because there were some people who could eat, you know, six times. The yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, but we would have, I mean, it was amazing. We met in our basement. And there's like little children's toys all around, you know. Uh, my kids are sitting in their high chair or walking around laughing with the students. Um, and we'd have, uh, usually we kind of settled into a great space where we had about 30. Um, but sometimes you'd have 50-something people and yeah. you'd have food for all of them. Yeah. And, you're just crowding around a basement. You're sitting on the floor. And, you know, there's there's some inconveniences that maybe yeah. came from that. I was thinking yesterday we had this hilarious, you know, these little plastic cars that kids have, the little Tykes cars. The bottom that, of it's yeah. red and the yeah. top of it's yellow. And I, I looked out in my backyard one time during Bible study, and I we had a steep backyard. And I saw a guy who had somehow finagled himself into the space of this car yeah. and I see it racing down the hill <laughs> in my backyard and I'm just thinking ah. <laughs> uh, but it uh, but it was great it, it, the the closeness that I still feel with the people that were there it's uh, it's palpable mm -hmm. I mean we're texting calling each other visiting each other um, still to this day and sure. it's been many years so yeah yeah no, that's really cool and um I liked what you highlighted at the end of, at the end of your um, paper, and you talked about um, common objections to hospitality, mm -hmm. um, specifically in regards to safety. Yeah, um, which are legitimate. You yeah, know, sure. That's, that's, that's legitimate. Yeah. Um, but you talk about the fear as the motivation in there, um, and. Can you unpack a little bit what you're yeah, talking sure. about there? Well, I think, you know, if your fear is that somebody might break something, then uh, I think that's a fear to just get rid of. Why do you have to have such nice stuff that you're afraid of somebody breaking something? Uh, I think that's one thing. But it is a legitimate concern if you invite a stranger into your house, especially to spend the night, and you have children in the house and they're little, um, and you don't know somebody, you don't know their intentions, um, th there's things you could do to be wise. Uh, there are things you do to be wise. And so um, one rule that, that we always made, and our students were very good about observing this, was, hey, let's let the kids have their upstairs bedrooms. Cause mm -hmm. Our house was such, and is still today, such that the kids' bedrooms are upstairs. Let's not go upstairs. And we would tell our kids, hey, we don't want you to take anybody upstairs. Mm -hmm. But if you have something that you made out of Legos and you want to show it to them, bring it downstairs and show it to them. Right. Sure. Play with them outside. Play with them around other people. Right. Eat with them. But we want to uh, keep your space separate. Um, that's uh, To me, that's just common wisdom. Right. And um, you don't have to feel guilty about that. Uh, right. I don't think it, you know, I don't go over to somebody's house and say, 
hey, listen, is it okay if I hang out in your master bedroom a little right. bit? <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Nobody's going to, people are going to think that's strange. Yeah. And rightly so. That's a very private personal space. But but uh, we basically opened up our, our living rooms and our kitchen and our um, basement playroom to everybody. And mm-hmm. it worked great. really yeah. worked great. Um, we learned how to get stains out. Yeah. You know, who knew that rubbing alcohol gets ballpoint <laughs> pen out of carpet, but now we know that. Now you know it. Yeah, no, and that's what, there's there's ways to think thoughtfully about, because, yeah, safety, I mean, it's not, it's not being ridiculous to be concerned about that. It's no, legitimate no, no, concern. no, it's a legitimate, um, legitimate thing. But like you said, there there are legitimate ways to uh, to work through that in a way, manner that you don't mm-hmm. keep that fear from you yeah. opening your doors. I yeah. think that's um, one of the big things. But I want to... Let's end with, there's a quote, um, you referenced this this interview a couple times on mm-hmm. Fuller Studio with uh, Christine Paul, mm-hmm. yeah. sure how you say yeah. it. Yeah, Christine Paul, she's an Asbury Seminary professor. Okay. And one of the most important voices in talking about, she's maybe the most important voice, talking about hospitality, yeah. Christian hospitality. And so she has this quote at the end of this um, interview, and I'll reference this in the show notes, um, but she says, um, because we don't want to put hospitality as the end-all, end-all solution to no. all the problems that we talked about no. earlier. But um, but at the same time, it's very substantial. Yeah, and, it works. And has a big part in how we work through all those things. Mm-hmm. So she says, some see hospitality as the full answer to these challenging issues. But I don't believe that hospitality alone can be our response. Other practices such as fidelity and truthfulness are critical as well. And sometimes they interact in a complex way with hospitality. Most significant of all to me is gratitude. Hospitality becomes grudging and distorted if it does not flow from a life of gratitude. Hmm. Committing to a tradition of hospitality grounded in gratitude, it seems to me, would take us a long way down the road towards faithfully responding to God's love as we recognize the value in every human being and come together with respect, integrity, and truth. Um, And the thing that I really liked about that that I think you high the, the feel you get from your paper, especially towards the conclusion, is in the New Testament specifically and Old Testament, Old Testament maybe not quite as much, but in the New Testament especially, you see hospitality. It is it is discussed and talked about in a way where it is an invitation to a new kind of life yeah. um, that flows from your recognition of God's love for yeah. you and for all of your neighbors. Yeah. Um, hospitality is an invitation to that, not an obligation. Yeah. And I think that's why we need to be careful not to adopt this practice in a begrudging way or yeah. because, well, if we have to, to try to get some good going in this world yeah. or whatever. But as a, as a um, embodied working out of our theology and our belief that God is who he says he is when he says he's love and yeah. that why we were far off, why we were sinners, yeah. he yet still loved us. And this as the embodied outworking and flow of, of our belief in that. And so it's an invitation yeah. to a new kind of life and it can transform your heart once yeah. you yeah, participate you don't, in it. You don't want to be burned out by it. Um, you can burn yourself out. You can also burn your kids out. Um, but, it, you know, it's really sweet. Surprisingly to me, my kids love it when their house is taken over by a bunch of college yeah. students coming over for dinner. They love it. They bring their toys down. They, they, I'll catch them. They don't do this very often when other people aren't around. I'll catch them playing the piano, you know, because mm-hmm. I can tell they're thinking, this is something I've learned. I wonder if they've heard this yeah. before. And they play it. Yeah. Um, so that's a, that's a really beautiful thing. Um, and in that way, I think your house becomes sort of like a center of mission. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of people are afraid about, you know, am I an evangelist? And when they think of evangelism, they think of, 
walking, you know, cold up to somebody mm-hmm. in a mall and saying, hi, yeah. would you like to know <laughs> my views on religious truth? I'll give you a chick track you know? or something. Yeah, yeah and that, uh, that freaks people out, rightly so. It's very different, though. When you invite somebody into your house and you've fed them, you start having deep conversation. Mm-hmm. And they're willing to listen to you. You're like, golly, this guy made me. You know, I say this guy, my wife is the diligent. I help. Yeah. I'm my wife's helper. Yeah. But she makes she makes the food. She does a fantastic job. But it's like, I should listen to these people. They just fed me their own food for no reason other than I don't even know what their reason is. Sure. But so let's talk about it. Um, there's a wonderful book, if I could leave with people, um, if you're really interested in your house becoming a place of mission, uh, is Rosaria Butterfield. Oh, um, right. Her book, <clears throat> The Gospel Comes with a House Key. And she basically envisions her suburban house as um, a place where there's always soup ready on the stove. Any kid from the neighborhood is welcome to come over to play. She walks her neighbor's dogs. She checks on them when they're sick. And um, her house is just a center of mission in their neighborhood. And it's uh, it's powerful. Mm-hmm. It's powerful. So Yeah, I've heard I her speak about it. Oh, it's that, awesome. So we'll put that in the show notes. Yeah. Um, last thing is we like to give our guests... Um, we are sponsored by Hershberger's Bakery. They make homemade pastries, oh, yes. donuts, things like that. They are, however, closed at the beginning of the week. So we got from another um, family we know that makes homemade bread as well. And it's homemade bread. Very good. This is from Hostetler's Country Store. So you're you're showing me hospitality because I came and talked about hospitality. That's right. We do this well, to all I our guests. I don't deserve so, that. Uh, Thank you so much. <laughs> I appreciate it. I'll vouch for the bread. Yes, uh, it looks fantastic. It took so, yeah, so I had the loaf for you for the interview, but since it took so long in between, uh, my wife and I ate it in between. So, <laughs> so now I can vouch for it. It's, yeah. it's very tasty bread. Well, thank you, Colin. So it's thank great, you for it's being great to be here. Thanks, thanks for letting me come. And uh, I'm excited about this bread. Love well, fresh bread. Very good. So go out and love your neighbor, everybody. Well, that was my conversation with Professor Grady. Um, mm-hmm. Javen, after listening to it, what are some of your thoughts? He was a great guest to have on. He was, he was fun. Mm. It was a good conversation. Um, yeah, so just a few different points that I kind of took note of while I listened through you guys' conversation. One thing I thought was interesting was he talked about how um, we're driven inside. Like he talked about how I think it was in Chicago, people would tell their kids to go out and you know go out and play, go out and find some friends and play with. And he said there was no one outside. Everyone's inside mm. playing Fortnite. <laughs> like there are no <laughs> kids outside. Which isn't necessarily to say you couldn't, you know, have fun and play with your friends on Fortnite, but definitely a different way of thinking about it. But I also remember hearing, um, I think Joe Mullet talk about this, that I think one street over from him, almost no one has air conditioning. And so that in the summer, while everyone else is like on hot evenings, everyone else is inside, you know, eating supper and watching TV, these people are outside trying to get air. And just the simple fact that they don't have air conditioning they're all on their porch hanging out and the street just becomes a big hangout simply because they don't have AC. But when you have something like the TV or air conditioning, it just drives us inside automatically. Yeah. And he also talked about the workplace along with that too. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, he said the locus of the American workplace has shifted. Uh, he didn't, he didn't cite as many reasons for that, but I think that goes back a lot to industrial revolution. You could trace some of that when, you know, the, the hub of, your work was around your house and the whole family participated in it. Um, as a, I mean, obviously there's exceptions, but as a yeah. more of a general rule of thumb, um, that was the case. And now 
you know, mom and dad, a lot of times, you know, have to go different places. Kids go to several different schools. Um, and so, yeah, it, it just creates a different kind of, not that that's a bad thing. It just creates a different environment where we have to ask different kinds of questions about what kind of people we're becoming. Yeah, for sure. And then another point that I thought was interesting was um, he talked about how, I don't think he said it in as many words, but essentially like we don't have to be bored anymore. And especially mm -hmm. as kids, um, you know, if you have a smartphone, you don't ever have to be bored. <laughs> like or whenever you find yourself with nothing to do and you just kind of like, Bleh, you can always pick up your phone and find something. And there are people whose lives are dedicated to developing things that will keep you hooked and entertained. I mean, it might be social media or video games or just browsing YouTube videos. Mm -hmm. I mean, just for hours and there's suggested videos that just, right. it, it never right. ever ends. And so you don't ever have to be bored, but like, is that a good thing? Right, right. I remember hearing of some research done by psychologist um, Jonathan Haidt. Um, but anyway, what he talked about is through all of his best research into lots of different experiments with kids, I think especially six and under, um, just to like track development, and I forget what all the markers were, but like the very best thing they could do for brain development and for mm -hmm. body development was just simply to play um, mm -hmm. and play and play and play. They weren't supposed to go, like he even said, don't send them to kindergarten, just have them play, create environments where they can play. And I thought that was really interesting. Yeah. And, and that, that space might be shrinking a little bit. You have to be m more creative with how you can make that space come about. Yeah, sure. And I think in some sense... I mean, it's a known thing, like, for for producing art or whatever, like, limitations are not a bad thing. Like, limitations mm -hmm. are what kind of set up the boundaries where you operate under. And now this is a big tangent, but this is a thought I had, and I'd be interested to hear your opinion. Did you hear Colony House's new album? Yeah. Yeah, I don't know if you liked it or not. I personally didn't care for it too much. It felt super, like, experimental. They were using like all kinds of sound effects and just going every mm -hmm. which direction with their music. And the thought I had while listening to it was like, man, if these guys would have just <laughs> left that kind of stuff alone, went into a garage with a four-piece rock band set up, wrote some songs and played, this could have been great. Which which well, made their first couple Yeah, because that's what just, their first one sounded yeah, like. It was oh, just like was guys great. playing some rock yeah. and roll. And this one, I mean, who knows where they'll go. They have great potential, great right. band. Colony House is great. But it just felt like there were no limitations to what they were allowed to experiment with. Mm -hmm. And the album kind of lacked direction and like, I don't really know what this is, but yeah, if you're not ever bored, there are no limitations. And so you don't ever have to seek out something to go do. Right. That's, I guess what I'm getting at. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's good. And like what you were saying too, um, even things like the thing that I found really interesting, that was fun to talk to him about a little bit is this idea that I think Sherry Turkle is the one he highlights, mm -hmm. brings it out, but as the medium being the message in a lot of these things and how that yeah. can miss, uh, how that can not have a great place in our conversations about this sometimes. Um, and sorry to break in. Yeah, no, go for it. As a communication major, I feel obligated to say that that's Marshall McLuhan, communication uh, okay. scholar's yeah. quote that she took <laughs> from him, but that's fine. Yeah. I don't even know if it was her quote. Maybe I heard you quote it and no, I gave it to I her. I heard it in the podcast. You guys were talking about it, but yeah. Okay, yeah. McLuhan. Yeah, the medium is the message, yeah. exactly. You were talking about with iPhones. Yeah, well, and see, okay, this is another tangent, but uh, it's a real tangent. I don't know if we can go down here very much, but I even think of it in um, even how we how some churches are set up, okay? Mm -hmm. So the medium of how we worship when you have, yeah. you know, like a group of people um, 
on a stage. And so a lot of times what we talk about is what, what kind of songs, what kind of music is playing. We talk about um, the, the media, content. The content, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but going to a more baseline thing, okay, what are actually about, you know, the pastor, just the pastor and worship leaders up on stage, what does that medium do? Because I, I think that that medium sends a message, too, that I would argue um, sometimes can enforce um, this divide between um, ministry as a higher calling and a secondary calling as those people who support those or who are in ministry. You know, and anyway, that's a long tangent. Yeah. I don't have time well, to get into it. Well, I think that's going to come back up and the next thing I want to talk about was one phrase you used that I really appreciated and liked was you, you talked about a deeply embodied space mm-hmm. as, a, as a place where you can offer people hospitality. Um, and that's what this whole conversation was, was centered around was hospitality. But I think just this idea that, you know, within your life or your family or your resources or the home that you have, like you have the power to make a new space where you can offer mm-hmm. people hospitality. And my mind just went to like, you know, whether maybe you have like movie nights on Friday nights mm-hmm. or you have game night Tuesdays or you just have some friends over for supper. And like, you know, it's, it's not even really the fact that it's not even the food that you're giving them or the movie that you're watching. Mm-hmm. It's the fact that you're creating a context where people are coming together and there's hospitality and like you can share in that. And it's deeply embodied. Yeah. Like people have to live yeah. in that Thursday night and they get to, and it's pretty cool. Yeah. And there's, it's no virtual. It, it's, you know, you're, you're there. And, um, cause that's been something that's rolling around, been rolling around a lot in my, um, just on a more of a personal level, because I think sometimes, being embodied for me has its challenges because a lot of times I can, when I have those times where I could be using them for self-reflection or Mm -hmm. trying to deal with a difficult emotion that I'm feeling or things like that, I use those times to, um, I can get into something else I'm doing or go on my phone or whatever it is. And so like it, it creates this space where like I have to work as well to become, to get to a place where I'm at home in my own skin. And I just think, like, when I think of the kind of person that I think would stand the most um, in a place that sees the world as it truly is and embodies that, it's the person at this point in time who's deeply embodied and, like, super comfortable in their own mm-hmm. skin. And present. And, and very present. And you, I don't know. It's, it's a kind of an intangible you can't always measure, but like I think we've probably all experienced like being with someone like that, and it's it's like a breath of fresh air. Sure. And uh, so I think that's the importance of creating these spaces in our houses where we can redeem the space, redeem this time for us to to get together and be embodied, and you know hopefully that just creates good character yeah. markers on our on our different things we're doing sure. in our lives. And what what we were talking about kind of on that last. Um, bit we were talking about there with different mediums mm-hmm. being viable and others not and so I think this is a a right. distinction like my mind goes to social media and um, like Snapchat or especially my big thing is Instagram I'm not a big fan of Instagram and you might say well I'm going to be a Christian and I'm going to use Instagram redemptively and I'm going to mm-hmm. use it virtuously or whatever but I think the question has to become like is Instagram constituted or created in such a way that that's even possible because all Instagram is is image like there's almost never text it's always image and so is it even set up in a way that you could do good or like what about these like apps where you swipe left if you don't like something swipe right if you do right like something like in what spaces is it possible 
to do redemptive work, be a Christian, be embodied. I don't know. Social media is hard, but having someone over to your house for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I remember Dr. Herringer talking about that some in our New Testament class, talking about social media specifically, but learning to recognize um, that, that some spaces, because of how their medium is created, mm-hmm. it might be a place that's more irredeemable. Yeah. Um, and the redeeming thing for us to do might be to not participate in that. Yeah. Um, and, and that's, yeah, we don't have the answers here or anything, but those are just, those are the kind of questions we have to ask ourselves. Yeah. Um, and I think, yeah, the interview does a great job of highlighting our context and why we need to ask those questions um, and how hospitality offers a, a, a different path. And again, like he, I really like the end of how, or how he ended his paper with talking about like hospitality has to flow from um, a transformed heart that's grateful. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I just thought, yeah, there's a lot of different things we could say about that. But Well, yeah, and he said that the Greek word for hospitality was like philoxenia or something yeah, like that yeah. and the love of strangers yeah. like you don't have a love of strangers before you have a transformed heart right yeah. right and yeah uh there's lots of different places we could go with that but we're probably running short on time but yeah it's um it has to flow from a heart of gratitude um and that comes i think like the term he used a couple times i think was theology in Embodied or yeah, theology and practice. I forget how he he said it, but um, hospitality does, yeah, at its best, um, it flows from a transformed heart that's really caught on to what God's doing in the world and um, His love for us and His love for our neighbors um, and our enemies. Yeah, and even I think in a world where it's easy to become like caught up in this place as politically divided or hostile, Mm -hmm. hospitality allows us to like create small like fortresses and places that are not like that within the world yeah and you might find that at your kitchen table or something yeah and that i mean that kind of gets we ended our talk on um the different political jargons that are going on by talking referencing david brooks's article on localism Um, yeah yeah yeah. and so we're kind of getting back to the same spot Mm -hmm. with this um interview but yeah so taking every atom and molecule of which you can exert your will (laughs) over and making it as hospitable as you can um, I think that's the call, love God and love our neighbor in this cultural time. And so really grateful for Professor Grady coming on and sharing different ideas he has um, about ways practically and theologically that we can walk sure. forward with this. So I think it's an idea that matters. For sure, for sure. Thanks for listening this week on the Abstract Pod- Podcast. Um, next week, Colin sits down with the spiritual formation director here, mm-hmm. Chris Stratton, and has a conversation with him. So that's we'll right. see Looking you next week. Thank you.